All right. How's everybody doing? Yeah? How many of you have added, drops, stayed in a class so far? Uh, <laughs> is that just about everybody? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid, and I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reform University Fellowship, uh, which is a ministry on campus uh, here at New Mexico State. Let me tell you a little bit about RUF. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the Greek and the non-Greek student, for the person who is always quote-unquote good, and the person who just says they're good even when they don't mean it. RUF exists for those who buy Jesus in the Bible, and those who sell Jesus in the Bible at all costs. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, Thanks for coming. Um, I hope you get to know us, and I hope we get to know you. And by us, I mean more than me. Um, you can start with some Bible study leaders and musicians and all the other people that help put this thing together. <clears throat> Just look for someone who knows what they're doing. You'll be fine. Okay. So I'm going to pass this around. Oh, great. I mean, we're on top of it today. I'm so excited. I mean... This has been this has been a really good day. Um, except for I had a flood in my office. That was the bad thing. Um, I uh, it was actually a, a man caused flood. It was me. I knocked over a glass on my desk. Um, so if it, if my if my uh, if my if my like Bible pages are especially crinkly, you'll know why. Um, I tried to air dry it. Um, it was just it was amazing. Um, anyway, so. Okay, we pass around the sign-up sheet. Sign up for that if you want to. You don't have to. Um, it's a good idea to not sign up for it if you already have signed up for it in the last month or so or last couple of months um, or ever this year. And um, the other possibility that you should look into is thinking about joining the Facebook group, NMSURUF. Um, you'll get some updates on details. Uh, for instance, the email list that's going around, you'll get an email about small groups. Um, we're not on the ball on that one, I'm sorry. We're going to try to start those next week, um, and I'm going to send an email out probably Friday with the times and the dates and what we're studying. So if you're on that list as a small group leader, start working on that. Okay. Uh, finally, two things. I guess finally doesn't really work there. Um, <laughs> RUF lunches, we're changing the time on the Tuesday one. Uh, they're an awesome, great way to meet people and hang out. We're doing 12 to 1 on Tuesday. And Jordan um, rightly pointed out that she has to leave at 1, so a half an hour lunch is a, a little bit of fast food and not what we're looking for. Um, and then there's still always a 1230 to 130 Friday deal. And you can look for me or Ethan. Where's Ethan? Uh, look at that. Okay. Um, finally, I'm just going to plug it already. It's just going to start VI. <laughs> Village Inn afterwards. Um, we're going to hang out. You can eat a waffle. Um, I had uh, omelets, toast, hash browns, and a blueberry milkshake, and I almost threw up right afterwards. Um, my wife continues to think I skip meals just so I can eat a Village Inn. Um, I was accused of that today. Uh, so, anyway... Uh, come on, it'll be great. Um, it's the new international lights I hear. Um, so, not quite so international. But, okay. So let me preface what we're doing here uh, in large group. This is large group. Uh, we're doing, we're talking about uh, a different thing than we usually talk about. Usually in RUF large group, 
I'll march through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, we talked about this last week, but I'm trying to prevent this phenomenon known as stories with Sid, where I just kind of think about whatever I want, I talk about whatever I want, and it becomes my little anecdotes about fun things, and you learn very little about what God has to say to us. But what we're really trying to do um, this semester is address an important topic without becoming stories with Sid. We're trying to address the gospel and relationships. Um, this is talking about relating, friending. I know that's not really like, I guess that's technically a word in the Urban Dictionary. Dating, sex, and marrying. Um, kind of stuff that's on your radar. This is the kind of stuff, I said this last week, that you stay up thinking about at night, and you wake up thinking about in the morning. Um, this is right up all of our alleys. And we're going to do this in particular um, biblically. We're going to look at passages of scripture, hence the hope to, to avoid stories of Sid. And we're going to do this in a way that many of your well-meaning friends and Christian books don't do. We're going to talk about the gospel. I mean, it sounds basic and simple, the whole message of scripture, what God has done through Jesus, but oftentimes we forget that in the course of talking about uh, these relational issues. And really, the gospel changes everything, including our relationships. And that's why we're going to talk about it. So with this in mind, turn in your Bibles or in your green sheet to chapter 3 of Genesis. As you're turning to chapter 3 of Genesis, I'm going to give you a heads up about the passage and about how I'm going to address the passage. Okay, so most of you are familiar with the story told in Genesis 3, a little look at what we're, Genesis chapter 3 in the, the green sheet or in your Bible. Um, we'll tell you, ah, I've heard this one before. Um, maybe you read it in English class. Maybe you've read it your entire life in church. Um, but really, this is actually a very difficult passage. There's a lot of difficult truths in it. Um, and so I feel like I have to make a preface. For some of you, a talking snake feeding a quote-unquote magical fruit to naked men and women, that seems a little bit outside of history. For you, Genesis 3 feels more like Cinderella than truth. Stay with us and give the Bible the benefit of the doubt and see if this narrative doesn't explain the contours, the landscape of your reality and of my reality. For others of you, Genesis 3 just makes you think about the problem of evil. Why did God let evil enter the world at all? What is the deal? This is another good question, um, but it's not the passage's main point. You see, there's no explanation, there's no commentary by the author of Genesis 3 about why evil is permitted to happen or why it happens. Uh, A lot of it just tells the story of how mankind fell into evil. And so I'm going to focus where the Bible focuses, but I'm not going to neglect your question. If you want to talk about your question, there are answers. I have a few of them, not all of them. But I'd love to talk to you about it. So you can come find me afterwards. We can set up a time. We can set up a small group to talk about that for one or two times. Um, if you've got the time, I've got the time to talk about it. But 30 minutes uh, tackling a whole chapter's worth of material is not the time to talk about the problem of evil. Okay? So I'm really going to give you this. This is a teaser for a future discussion. Or maybe this is just enough said. Here's a quote. The guy's name is Brevard Childs. I like that name. Brevard. Tear, next baby. Okay. I put her on the spot. Okay. Brevard Childs. Evil is not created by God, 
nor is it outside the power of God. Evil is not created by God, nor is it outside the power of God. Discuss amongst yourselves. Okay, well, well, if you want to talk about that more, I'm more than happy to talk about it. For some of you, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Problem solved. I I wish that were more of you. Okay, so... (laughs) With all of this stuff about, like, the problem of evil, like, is this history ringing in your mind, would you turn again with me, if you haven't already, in your Bibles or the green sheet to Genesis chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 21. So, most of the chapter. Uh, Would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking, Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and, the wo- and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who gave you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, that, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for, or actually in the Hebrew, against your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your, of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, garments of skin, and clothed them. Friends, the heavens and the earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. 
Would you pray with me? Father, uh, this is a lot of text, and it's complicated, and I pray, Lord, that you would give me um, wisdom and clarity to purify my lips to speak your truth. I pray, Lord, that you give the people here gathered to hear from you, um, I pray that you give them um, ears to hear, hearts to wonder, minds to think. I pray, Lord, that they would ponder your verses and your scripture. I pray, Lord, that um, you would show up. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move mightily and that, um, Lord, you'd you'd, uh, honor this time together, that you'd make it pleasing in your sight and that you would move your people to change us for the better. In your son's name, amen. You can be seated. Thanks. Why don't you take a second, as we're getting settled, to think about your friendships and the people you have and haven't dated. Maybe you want to date them, maybe you didn't, but let's think about them. How do you feel about these relationships? My guess is you feel two conflicting emotions. Sentimental longing and hardened cynicism. I listen to the way Les Newsom, he's a campus minister, he, he does my job at Ole Miss, which is, for those of you who aren't from the southeast, Ole Miss is like, um, it's the University of Mississippi, I don't know why they call it Ole Miss, I, I mean, there's probably a lot of really cool reasons. Um, anyway, listen to the way that Les Newsom puts our situation, those two conflicting emotions of sentimentalism and cynicism. He says this, we live in odd times. Never have we been more cynical about relationships. Our understanding of what it means to love someone and to serve someone forever has been reduced to a dirty joke. Yet at the same time, never have we been so sentimental about relationships. We long to be meaningfully joined with someone who knows us to the bottom and will stay with us. It's a great quote. Um, last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 1 and our, relation, our relational sentimentality. Like, why do we have such a deep-seated desire, such an ache within us to know and to be known? And I argued, because the scripture argues this, that we're made in the image of a sociable God. A God that is He and we. And so we long for the perfect love that exists within the Trinity, within God, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This week, we're talking about Genesis chapter 3. And instead of sentimentality, we're going to talk about relational cynicism. Why do we have such jaded thoughts about love, about friendship, and about other people in general? Why do many of our relationships feel so fake, so forced, so wrecked? There's this uh, TV show, a sitcom called Seinfeld, (laughs) that illustrates this collision point between sentimentality on the one hand and cynicism cynicism on the other. For those of you who aren't familiar with Seinfeld, like maybe you didn't grow up watching like primetime NBC, 
on Thursdays in the 90s. Um, or you aren't addicted to Seinfeld reruns on TBS or YouTube. For those of you, let me just give you a taste. Seinfeld is a show about nothing. Self, self-described. Yes, nothing. Well, nothing really doesn't mean literally nothing. It actually means very, very small things that are made very, very big and important by people who are very, very self-centered and bored. Namely, Jerry Seinfeld and his friends Kramer, George, and Elaine. Let me just give you a taste, okay? I'm going to give you the scene in a second, too. But Imagine a woman cracking lobster claws with her bare hands. And all of a sudden, this becomes, for Jerry, a reoccurring nightmare and a reason to end their dating relationship. Her name is Man Hands. <laughs> anyway, it's a great show. I could talk about Seinfeld for a while. Anyway, I wanted, to, I wanted to point our attention to one particular episode where best friends George and Jerry kind of, for once, transcend a superficial relationship and decide to have a deep moment. They decide that they're going to talk about their deepest, darkest secrets. They get together, they sit in George's kitchen, and they have at it. Um, George goes first, and there's this like series of silent shots, like a montage of George talking and weeping and, and like just mostly throwing up, right? And then you see, and it pans to Jerry Seinfeld, and Jerry just sort of gets more and more shocked, more and more rigid, more and more just, just frankly appalled. <laughs> there George is tearing up, sharing the most intimate thoughts of his heart, and there Jerry is getting paler and paler, and his lips starts to turn up in disgust like he's about to vomit. Finally, George ends his, um, kind of still weeping, still emotional, ends his sort of conversation, uh, his pouring out of his heart, and there's this awkward silence that ensues, just really awkward. People are like shuffling, there's chairs, there's tables moving, um, no one's, everyone's kind of shifting their weight back and forth, and <laughs> finally George says, Jerry, it's your turn, go ahead. And Jerry kind of pauses, and then he starts sort of slowly backing away from George, kind of shaking his head, and like looking with like disgust at, at George, and hatred really, and kind of goes, ah, I'd rather not, and then just leaves the room. <laughs> what I love about this scene from Seinfeld is who hasn't had a moment like this? A life experience like this. There you are, like George, pouring out your heart, the deepest things about you, to another's disgust. Or there you are, like Jerry. All of a sudden, you're in a conversation. You find someone's taken the forklift of their soul and dropped tonnage, just raw tonnage of emotional baggage on your lap. What's so instructive about this Seinfeld episode, and this scene in particular, is it tells us these Seinfeld moments about us in particular tell us about our basic truth about our relationships. Our relationships don't work properly. They just don't. <laughs> when we act with our God-designed longings and we meet someone and in turn they act with their God-designed longings, oftentimes two people twist into re- relational wreckage. It just looks like a, 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 the emotional equivalent of a car hitting a telephone pole. Why is this? Why do our relationships so often end in conflict or misunderstanding? What is to be done about frustrated relationships? Is there an alternative to becoming a cynical hermit? 
passage tonight, Genesis 3, explains why and how our relationships don't work. And, they, and it puts it in a word. The Bible puts it in a word. Sin. That's the problem. And Genesis 3 also gives us the solution to the problem of sin. In a word, Jesus. The offspring of Adam and Eve. Simply, Genesis 3, verses 1-24 through 24 tell us, sin has shipwrecked our relationships, but have faith. Jesus is rebuilding us and our relationships. So, sin has shipwrecked our relationships. But have faith. Jesus is rebuilding us and our relationships. The pattern of our relationships traces the story of sin and Jesus in the Garden of Eden. Here's how it does it broadly. Verses 1 through 6, we see why relationships don't work. Verses 7 through 19, we see how relationships don't work. Then verses 20 through 21, we see how Jesus is fixing our relationships. Let's look at this passage in narrative order. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6, why relationships don't work. All right. So let me set the scene for you. Genesis 2 has happened, and uh, we've kind of skipped over that. We'll come back to it. And really what's happened is God has put Adam and Eve, the two first people, a man and a woman, in a garden. The garden's called Eden. And he's told Adam to work and keep it, and he's given a specific commandment along those lines. He said, whatever you are allowed to eat of any tree of the garden, of all of its fruit, except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't do that. You might think, why? God tells us, because you shall surely die if you eat of it. Kind of a good reason to avoid it. Um, so that's what we have. And I want you to think about this last statement of Genesis 2. It says this, And the man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and unashamed. I think that's a summary statement that suggests perfect, safe relationships that once existed, that we all long for. And I think it's really going to be important to hold on to that as we explore Genesis 3 and see not-so-perfect relationships and unsafe relationships that develop. So, in the garden, end of Genesis 2, everything's perfect. But then a serpent enters the picture and everything falls apart. And this is where I lose some of you. Sid, a talking snake. Please. I mean, what in the world is going on now? But... This story, I'm going to assure you, isn't just some sort of fairy tale or myth, okay? It's not just about singing mice or trickster coyotes. That's not what we're we're engaging here. The serpent speaks, but he doesn't speak because all serpents talk. That's not how this world works. We know that. He speaks because Satan, a rebellious spiritual being, has taken the form of a snake. The New Testament books of Romans, chapter 16, and Revelation particularly chapter 20, speak of that serpent in the beginning in the garden being Satan. Okay? Uh, but some of you, that doesn't really help. Um, some of you are saying Satan. That might be worse than a speaking snake. Um, let's not make the mistake of denying spiritual things. Okay? It's a limited view of the world to deny that there's a spiritual dimension to it. It just is. Certainly, we can't detect with scientific method spiritual beings like God and Satan. So anytime someone says, I can disprove or prove the existence of God using the scientific method, don't believe them. 
Okay? The scientific method measures material, physical causes and data. It doesn't measure spiritual issues. But to sit there and say, because science can't prove God or Satan, therefore I don't believe it, is a little bit like saying, I can't see bacteria with the naked eye, so therefore I don't believe bacteria exists. Go with me on this one, okay? Um, I can only see bacteria directly with a microscope, a tool. And I can only see spiritual things like God and Satan with a tool, Scripture. So let's look through the lens of Genesis 3 to see why relationships don't work. The spiritual element as well as the emotional element. Verses 1 through 6 tell us what the failure of relationships is summed up by this. A lack of trust. A lack of trust. See if that doesn't resonate in your life. And how does this lack of trust enter the picture? Because Satan, as a serpent, tempts us to distrust God by attacking God's word and by attacking God's character. So we're going to go through this. Temptation goes after God's word. Look at the second half of verse 2 here. The serpent says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Look at how the command of God is twisted here. The first temptation asks us to doubt if God actually made the command. I mean, did he really say that? And our failure to trust God's ways as the best ways for us often starts with us mistrusting whether God ever actually said that. Think about the hard things of the Bible and think about how oftentimes those things are buried in cultural context, Greek and Roman context, Hebrew context, ancient Near Eastern context, or they're lost in translation according to our culture. Does everyone kind of get that? Sometimes we take an issue, like, I can't ever understand the original Hebrew or Greek. The translation's so far from it, I'll never get why I'm supposed to you know, love people or why I'm supposed to not envy other people. And, or you take an issue like the, the Greco-Roman context, well, the Greeks or the, the Philippians in the letter to Paul are only supposed to love people. I'm not. And what I'm saying is those translation and interpretation are important issues to wrestle with. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we use translation and interpretation as excuses not to address the commandment given. And so we're saying, like the serpent, did God actually say that? The second temptation offered here is that the serpent changes the very nature of God's commandment. He makes them feel and look more harsh than they really are. Again, he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. That wasn't what God commanded. He commanded that you shouldn't eat of one tree of the garden in Genesis 2. Not any. Right? You could eat of any other tree except for one. Let me give you an example. In our lives, we go from God tells us, commands us not to get drunk, to God tells us not to drink alcohol. We're making the commandment of God more harsh than it really is. Just like the temptation in the garden. We can talk about that afterwards. Alright. Finally, sometimes look at verse 4. We see that temptation flatly contradicts God's good advice. The serpent tells Eve, you shall not die. You eat it, eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you won't die. 
clearly God says the opposite in Genesis 2. And think about it this way. Jesus tells people not to hate other people in their heart. But oftentimes temptation tells us making someone else feel worse will make us feel better. Which is a flat contradiction of some good advice in the Bible. Temptation also commits character assassination. It attacks God's character. It tries to tell us that God isn't good. Look at verses 4 through 5. The serpent basically is saying the reason that God banned you from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because he doesn't want you to be intelligent and wise like him. There's an envy thing going on with God. He wants to be special. And he doesn't want you to be special too. I like the paraphrase that Sally Lloyd-Jones offers in the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is how she puts the question. Does God really love you? If he does, why won't he let you eat of the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. In verses 4 through 5, the serpent is planting the doubt that God is not good, God does not care about us and love us, and frankly, God doesn't want you to be happy. And if we're honest, this is the cause behind all of our disobedience to God. We think God's rules are a straitjacket. Really, God's out to lock us up, and he's out to lock us up with his rules, and so that we can be miserable, and he can have some sort of sick, sadistic, cruel joy. And so how, do, how does the passage correspond? What does Eve and what do Adam, silent Adam here, what do they do in the face of this temptation? They sin. They sin. They respond to the tax on God by believing the terrible lies about God and about his word. In verses 2 and 3, Eve takes the serpent's lead, and she even adds an element of harshness to the command. You notice this in verse 3, I think. Um, she says, God told us not to eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said not to touch the fruit. But it makes God all the worse in her mind. Then look at verse 6. Eve pushes God's wisdom aside and takes it upon her own senses to decide what's best for her and what's best for Adam. She sees the fruit, and it looks good for eating, and she says, it looks good and tasty, why not eat it? And she does. And so she and Adam, and I want you to notice that Adam is silent and painfully passive during this whole temptation. Remember, God gave him the command, and he's doing nothing about it. She and Adam, even Adam, ruined their relationship with God. And I want you to hear this again, Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a children's Bible, but it's beautiful. Okay, listen to it. She says, Adam and Eve don't just break one rule. They break God's heart. But how does this distrust of God ruin all of our relationships? You might be thinking, wow, that's really cool. Um, you know, you've unpacked this. They've changed the, the nature of the commandments. They've made it more harsh. They've contradicted it. Um, what does this do? And I said this last week. If our vertical relationship with God fails, every other relationship we have, every other horizontal relationship we have with creation, with everything in creation, with everyone else here or in, in the world, all of those things fail. And I'm going to explain that more. If we mistrust God, God who does not lie, who loves everyone perfectly, 
If we mistrust him, how much more are we going to mistrust people who lie and love imperfectly? Sin basically is this. It tells God and everyone else in our life, leave me alone. Leave me alone. It says, it beats its chest, and it shouts to the rooftops, I am the master of my own destiny. God, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to believe. Don't tell me what's good, what's evil. Don't tell me what's right and what's wrong. Do you see why eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil causes sin? This tree is a declaration of our decision to play God in our lives. I've determined what's good and what's evil. I will decide decide for myself how to live best. Even though I possess a limited, finite slice of knowledge of an ever-expanding universe, I will decide what's best. My five-month-old daughter, Carol, cries every time I put her to sleep without fail. Every time I wrap her in a swaddling blanket, she starts wailing. Every time I walk into a dark room with white noise, she screams at the top of her lungs. Every time I put her down in her crib, she cries and cries and cries for at least five minutes. She's afraid to sleep. She doesn't like sleeping. And, and the question I have for you is, are Tyr, my wife, and I torturing Carol by putting her to sleep? No. If it were up to baby Carol, she would stay up all the time and she would never miss anything. Right? She wants to see everything. And then she would be exhausted and instead of crying just in her crib, she'd be crying all the time. 24-7. Because she doesn't know how to put herself to sleep. Now, I want you to think about this. If God is really God, okay, if you buy that premise, the gap between our knowledge and God's knowledge is infinitely greater than the gap between five-month-old Carol's knowledge and her daddy's knowledge. Okay? So each of us living by our own wisdom and not by God's wisdom is, a, is far more foolish, far more foolish than my five-month-old Carol going on a sleep protest in order not to miss anything. So the first part of Genesis has discussed why relationships don't work. There's a lack of trust, starting with our lack of trust for God in the very beginning. second part of Genesis, verses 7 through 19, tells how relationships don't work. Just glance at verses 7 through 19 with me. Verse 7, human beings find that they're naked and they are ashamed. How do we know that? They run to clothe themselves with fig leaves. Let me just give you a little insight. Leaf clothing, not the way to go. Okay? Definitely close to nakedness. Pretty much nakedness. A leaf isn't going to cover what you need to cover. Um, even if you're a master uh, sower. And so in verse, seven, verse 8 through 10, they realize that their leaf loincloths are really inadequate. And so when God comes into the picture in the cool of the day, they sort of hit the bushes. Like, whew, this is scary. I've got to get out of here. I feel so much shame, so much physical and spiritual shame. Remember, now that they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God seems untrustworthy. His word is too strict, and he doesn't want us to be happy. So being naked and vulnerable before him is, is not an appealing option. Just not the way it's going to work. But God in his love pursues us pursues Adam and Eve there in the bushes among the trees 
in their fig leaves. And in the face of that bright, hot honesty of God, all of a sudden Adam and Eve smear their shame on each other. Right? So, Adam, what, what gives? Did you eat of the tree? Well, Eve told me to smear. Eve, what gives? Did you eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Well, the serpent told me to smear. And so, God sorts this out in verses 14 through 19 by addressing the guilty parties in order of the way in which they've been blamed. Snake first, woman second, man third. And he hands over each of them, the snake, the woman, and the man, and all of their offspring to the consequences of mistrust. Prideful Satan will be, some, will be humbled. The woman will desire control in every single one of her relationships. And the man will be passive, fearing to act and be frustrated. All right. Let me tell you something true about everyone in this room. I'm not Miss Cleo, okay? I'm not Psychic Anna. But I can tell you this, because I know it. You and I feel naked and ashamed, spiritually speaking. And we want to run and hide from God and from each other. Have you ever been seen naked? Have you ever felt that kind of shame? One time... (laughs) Ready for this? You're not going to believe this story. It happened. Um, Just put yourself back as a freshman. Third week of my freshman year of college. I was showering in a stadium locker room. I played soccer in college, and the varsity team was not was, was traveling without me because I was bad. Okay, and they decided I decided to practice that morning so I could get good, so I could travel with the varsity team. Um, anyway, I was lathering up, maybe humming a tune, maybe singing a tune. I don't really remember. It's nice acoustics in a group shower um, by myself, and all of a sudden I heard the locker room punch code go in and out. At first, I thought it was nothing, maybe just another JV kind of player. Maybe he's using the locker room. But then as the door opened with that whoosh, I heard the sound of a crowd of female voices. Gets better. Um, They were descending the stairs, and I was terrified because I knew the bottom of the stairs, right on the right-hand side, were the showers. And it was a group shower. It was just a wide-open space. Just porcelain all the eye I can see. Nowhere to hide, okay? And, and so, there I was. They were descending the stair. There's a train of cheerleaders, you know, just double, two by two, or whatever. And I heard them coming in the stair, and they did, for some reason, I guess, maybe the shower sound didn't really register. Um, and they just started, like, all of a sudden, the first group of people came to the opening of the shower, and they just sort of stopped. <laughs> and it was like, you know, like dominoes. They stopped after each other. <laughs> and there it was, like, naked, in the fetal position, <laughs> facing the wall. My backside glory just there for all to see. Third week freshman year. Whole, whole freaking cheerleader squad of Davidson College. And really, what? They, they just... Stood there, silent. I was kind of hoping they'd back up. They were, they were doing the math in their head. They, they sort of said, "Sound of shower plus random naked guy in the shower equals an awkward situation." And then there's a sound that I will never forget: the awkward giggling sound of a group of girls. It started sort of as a, and then it kind of went into a high-pitched 
uncomfortable squeal. I think I turned the water off. Um, they eventually back out the door, and, and uh, to this day, I really haven't recovered. Um, ten years ago, ten years ago that was, I felt this intense moment of shame. I still feel it when I talk about the story, as much as, as terrible as it is. Um, Tears' senior roommate was one of those cheerleaders, so I get to see her every day. Um, anyway, I'll tell you in that moment, all I wanted to do was run and hide, to cover myself with something. You know, I guess my fig leaves were the fetal position, <laughs> facing the wall. And let me tell you something else. Again, not a psychic. Just take my word for it. Take Scripture's word for it. You and I have sinned greatly. Immensely. Like many times, multiple times. And deep down inside, we all know it. We've sinned big time in our lives. And when we think about those moments, even now, um, and because of those moments, even now, you and I feel in front of each other and in front of God what I felt like in the shower. That intense shame, spiritually speaking. That loathing of the self. Your hot, your blushing shame covers your body, covers my body when we think about the way we've hurt other people, that we've hurt ourselves, that we've hurt God. And this spiritual shame, there's nothing that we can do to cover it. There's no towel in sight. But verse 21 of our passage tells us that God can do something about our spiritual shame, about our physical shame. Verse 21 tells us that God clothed Adam and Eve in their nakedness. He sacrificed an animal or two animals, and he took the skins and he clothed Adam and Eve in the midst of their failure. And the New Testament tells us that God cannot just clothe our physical nakedness, but our spiritual nakedness. He can cover our shame, but only with the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Jesus Christ, the offspring of Genesis 3.15, covers our shame. On the cross, Eve's offspring, Jesus himself suffered. He was bruised. And he died. And he rose again in triumph, crushing the head of Satan, that ancient foe. Therefore, in Christ, we can actually stand before God and stand before other people, even in the face of our sin. And we can feel that honesty. We can feel his delight and not his anger. Shame is no more in Christ Jesus. And God's delight in us in Christ, His delight in us in Christ, helps us to move forward towards Him and towards other people instead of running away from Him and hiding from other people. Let me give you some takeaways. Show up and go there with people because of what Christ has done for you. What do I mean? Ask hard questions and listen to answers from people. 
Here's another application. Let other people speak into your life. Ask them, how am I doing? What am I like? Now, you've got to be wise about the kind of people you ask this question to. Okay, Don't ask some random person. Get to know someone. Can, you know. But it's a really great way of saying, you know what, I'm covered in Christ. Because I'm covered in Christ, I don't have to feel that shame and that awkwardness and that nakedness anymore. With God, with each other. So our relationships are a mess. We don't trust God and we don't trust anybody else. We feel the weight of this mess and our shame and we see it in our hiding and our blaming. But into this mess comes Jesus. Now you've got to think about the messiness of Jesus' life. He enters a poop-filled stable. That's where he's born. And he dies in a blood-smattered, bathed in blood cross. He came to clean up our mess, our sin. He came so that we can rest and be understood. And I'd like to end with this. This is a, it's a song. It's actually a prayer of a, of a musician named David Bazan to God. And maybe you can silently pray along. This is going to be our prayer, and I'm going to say amen, and we're going to be done. The sun shines and the leaves blow, and my hope, like autumn, is turning brown. I know it seems like I'm always falling down. It's uphill both ways. Tomorrow, I swear I won't act this way. I know it seems like what it, what, that it is what I always say, that I won't act this way. But it does not matter to me, although it seems like it should. It's because I know I'm understood. When I hear him, when I hear God say, Rest in me, little David, and dry all your tears. You can lay down your armor and have no fear. Because I'm always here when you're tired of running. And I'm all the strength that you need. Amen.